I'd like to ask the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 2, Luke's Gospel chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 6 and 7 uh, in particular, Luke chapter 2. You know the scripture says, there you are. <laughs> I had everybody looking down for a moment. I guess you were turning in your Bibles. Okay. The scripture says that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, training, correction, and righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so there's really no way that you can say that there's any such thing as an unimportant passage in the Bible. But I think it is possible to say that there are some passages that really stand out. If you think of the scriptures like a mountain range, there are some passages that stand out. Their peaks seem to be just a little higher because they capture some of the core um, essentials of, of our faith. And one of those has to be Luke chapter 2. First of all, because it's so familiar uh, to us, if nothing else, we read it every Christmas, you know, and Mary brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. By the way, you'll notice a new little shaded box in the bottom right corner of your study guide, which gives a memory verse. We're going to offer uh, what I would consider the key verse from each week from now on in that little box. So if you want to memorize a verse a month or every two weeks or every week, there's, there's a suggestion for you uh, as we go through Luke's gospel of a verse that you can commit to memory. You know, as, as we look at this passage this morning, um, when John talks about the Incarnation, God becoming man. He views the story from kind of a heavenly perspective. He says, in beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was face to face with God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. And so John begins in the heavens, and with creation, and the eternal um, reality of God the Son. And then in verse 14 he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of an only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so John starts there and brings uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, uh, to earth in that statement in verse 14. But Luke uh, completely views the Incarnation from a very human perspective. And also, interestingly enough, because of his background, from a very medical perspective. Um, Luke uses some terms in this uh, opening verses of this first chapter that are never found elsewhere in Scripture, but are found in other extra-biblical writings of a medical nature. For example, the word for pregnant. Um, the King James translates it great with child, but that word is a physician's terminology. That's how a, 
uh, someone in the medical profession would view pregnancy using the term that he uses. And then uh, when he says, uh, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, Luke again uses a, a term that it means swaddling cloths, but it's also used in the context of bandages or wrappings or whatever that might be uh, for another purpose, a wound or what have you. And Luke kind of betrays his own background as he gives us uh, those kinds of uh, bits of information. But when we come to Luke chapter 2 in these first seven verses, I think we have certainly come to one of those pinnacles of inspired writing where it says, and if you like to follow along as I read, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. Great, great passage to tell us in the simplest of terms and yet the most beautiful that our Lord Jesus Christ came into this world and was born in a stable and laid in a manger because there wasn't room for this couple uh, in any local guest house or inn. You know, I want to dial back a little bit and go back to Nazareth because that's where they left from to go to Bethlehem. And we talked last week about some of the particulars of why Bethlehem and what prompted this and uh, this uh, edict coming out from Caesar that everyone should be taxed and really it had to do with being registered more than anything else. But it required that Joseph go back to his ancestral home and register in Bethlehem. And what is uh, kind of interesting about this particular event and the timing of it in Mary's life is that Mary was probably in her late eighth month or ninth month of pregnancy when they started this trip. And you ladies know, that's not a great time to be traveling, (laughs) even in a car, but uh, to be walking for 70 miles. You know, imagine being in your ninth month of pregnancy and saying, yeah, we're going to walk down to Gary, Indiana today. Uh, That's a long hike. We're talking four or five or more days. It would have taken a healthy person in good condition four days to make that trip. We have no idea how long it took Mary and Joseph to make it. And they had to wind their way down through Samaria because that was the typical route 
uh, you didn't stay in the mountain country the whole time. You know, you got off in the flatland and then you came back in to Bethlehem at the bottom, which was kind of southwest of Jerusalem. And so they would have had a four or five day journey with Mary about to deliver. Now, there's nothing, interestingly enough, in Scripture to suggest that they showed up just as she was in labor and they had to find some place fast. Um, there's nothing to suggest that, that they, uh, she gave birth the very moment they arrived. Uh, our Christmas plays all suggest that. <laughs> but the Scripture simply says that they got to Bethlehem and, and there wasn't any place for them to stay. And uh, sometimes we make this... Uh, you know, this great drama out of everybody turned them away and all that kind of thing. But the reality is, two things were going on. This was the season for the Feast of Tabernacles. And so all of Jerusalem was, were, were going to be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And Bethlehem was just five or six miles out of town where the sacrificial sheep, the flocks were raised. So we looked at that the week before. So you have everyone moving toward Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, but you also have this census going on and people having to go back to their ancestral home, and Bethlehem was not that big. I mean, estimates are that Bethlehem may have been as few as 300 people normally. Even if you beef that up to a 1,000 or more, the principal function of Bethlehem was to be a place for shepherds to live who took care of the temple flocks. So you can imagine if you have people naturally traveling for the Feast of Tabernacles and you have people traveling back to their ancestral home, that Bethlehem would become crowded quickly. And because of that, uh, when they arrived there, family, friends, didn't matter. There was just no room. They were out of room. And Luke tells us that the time came for Mary to give birth, and they went to a stable, a shelter that was out of the elements, and she gave birth in that place and laid Jesus in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. We're going to talk a little more about the specifics of that next week when we look at the shepherd's visit but I want to highlight for you this morning the fact that this is an amazing journey to be made <coughs> at this point in Mary's pregnancy and the protection and the care that God surrounded them with. I, I wish somehow I could have a heavenly viewpoint, you know, and just look at all the angels that must have been surrounding them and all the supernatural care that must have been going on, because you know nothing could happen to this baby. And you know that there's at least one enemy that would have wanted to make sure something did. And uh, that enemy dogged his steps all the way to the cross. And yet God's supernatural care for them during this event. Another thing that we often uh, kind of get sort of bollocked up in our in our Christmas dramas is that we have shepherds and wise men showing up on camels uh, all to the manger scene, you know, on the night of Jesus' birth. But there's no indication that the wise men from the east came at that time. In fact, there's every suggestion that they came later on. 
Uh, first of all, they were in a house when they showed up. Jesus is called a child, not a baby, when they showed up. And uh, one wonders if they already had gold and frankincense and myrrh, how come they couldn't afford the more expensive offering at his dedication uh, a little while later, eight weeks, uh, eight days from now, instead of the two turtle doves, which was basically the offering of the peasantry. Um, and so there are all these factors that, that uh, get involved there. But um, we, we find that they stayed in Bethlehem for a while. And you know, I have to think that maybe there were a number of reasons for that. I don't think Nazareth was a very fun place for them to be. Luke refers to Mary as his engaged wife, at least in the New American Standard text, but the original Greek, and Matthew makes this somewhat plain, says espoused wife, and Matthew tells us that after the visit of the angel to Luke, that Luke, uh, I mean to uh, Joseph, that Joseph was told, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And Matthew says, so he took her as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to Jesus, indicating that they were married in Nazareth. In fact, culturally, that would have been a requirement for her to be traveling with him in their society. And so Joseph had taken Mary to be his wife. And you got to know that even if their families uh, got on board with this whole virgin birth thing, that the town did not. Nazareth, to begin with, was a rough and tumble place. It was the kind of thing that um, uh, caused Andrew to say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, that's, that's just like, well, I won't give any local... Uh, equivalents, <laughs> but uh, that's a that's a tough spot. Can anything good come out of there? And um, as a, as a result of that, you know there had to be talk. I mean, if if Joseph wasn't the cause for Mary's pregnancy, then why is he marrying her? And what's all this stuff going on here? And uh, later on in the gospel story, um, when Jesus goes back to Nazareth to the synagogue, you know, and astounds them with his wisdom, it's interesting how people are not so much astounded by the wisdom as, as finding it hard to believe it's possible in one who came out of their midst. And they look at each other and say, what is this stuff? Isn't this the carpenter's son? That's what prompted Jesus to say, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his own family. And so Nazareth, I don't think, was a very nice place for Mary and Joseph to go back to. And so after they traveled to Bethlehem, they stayed there for a bit. Speaking of the what we call the Magi or the wise men from the east, Last week we looked at why Bethlehem, and we considered the prophecies of Micah. Micah naming Bethlehem by name and saying, You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are not least among uh, the, the towns and cities of Judah and, and Israel, because out of you, you know, is going to come this great king. But there's actually prophecy that goes way back before that. 
Uh, it goes back to the Old Testament in Numbers when the Israelites had fled from Egypt and they were wandering in the wilderness and uh, the Moabites were terrified of them. They had heard how the Egyptian army had been drowned in the Red Sea and how they had had all of these uh, triumphant battles already. And, uh, you know, Balak hired Balaam to go and prophesy against them. And it's kind of curious how sometimes in Scripture these guys pop up. You know, Melchizedek, uh, back with Abraham in, in early Genesis, it's, he was uh, priest of Salem. And um, where did he come from? You know, because he seemed to be connected to the true God. And same with Balaam. Balaam seemed to have a relationship with the true God. Now, I don't know how deep it was because he, he didn't do so well later on. But, but uh, Balaam goes to him and he's known as this guy that can prophesy and what he says comes true. So he says, I want to hire you to go and prophesy against those Israelites out there running around in the desert because they got their sights on us and we're going to be in trouble. And so... Um, Balaam says, well, all right, I'll come, but here's the deal. No matter what you pay me, I can only prophesy what God tells me. So I can't say anything else. Okay, just come deal with these people. So Balaam goes out and he gives his prophecy. And if you read Numbers chapter um, 23 and back before there, um, Balaam is prophesying, and basically what he says, Israel, you're great, you're wonderful, you're going to rule the world. You're going to conquer everybody. You're going to be fantastic. Um, you're going to be the greatest nation on the earth. Balak says, wait a minute, I didn't hire you to do this. You know, change your prophecy. And Balaam says, I can't do that. I told you I can only tell you what God tells me to say, and I can only prophesy what I hear. And he says, furthermore, let me tell you what's going to happen to you. <laughs> and he turns, he turns the spotlight on Balak, and he begins to prophesy, and then he says of Judah, a star, a star is going to rise out of Judah, and a scepter is going to come, a great king, and he goes on to describe this kingdom of this great one that is going to rise from the land of Judah, and basically be, in essence, the greatest king the world has ever seen. But as Balaam gives that prophecy, he says, I see him, but not yet. I, I, I can catch a glimpse of his kingdom, but it's not near, not now. And he indicates to us that while there is a great king coming, the time is not quite right. But in fact... When Jesus is born in the hill country of Bethlehem, the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians chapter 4 tells us, in the fullness of time, God sent his Son. There were things that had to happen to prepare the way for Christ. For example, God had promised certain things to Abraham about his, his heritage, his, his offspring. The great nation would come from him, and through him all the peoples of the world would be blessed, and God would use that nation to 
reveal his character to the world. He began to do that in the giving of the Ten Commandments and the law. But another thing that had to happen was God not only had to reveal his character by the demonstration of a righteous moral code, but he also had to give human beings the opportunity to to test it and to come to the realization that they could not keep that law without help, that they were not able to follow those rules and to keep those commandments. In fact, in Galatians 4, Paul says the law was our schoolmaster, our teacher pointing us to Jesus. Because it proved to us that we could not be righteous apart from his help and his grace and his mercy. And we needed him to, to cleanse our sin and give us the uh, capacity for a new birth and to give us his spirit to bring us alive again in God. And so Paul says it had to be the fullness of time before Jesus could be born. Luke puts it this way, And so while they were there, the time came for Mary to deliver Jesus. The timing at last was perfect. This is the moment that God is going to step into human history in the form of a baby born in a stable outside of Bethlehem and be laid in a manger. One of the things, and again it's an aside, but I find it fascinating, is that in the East there were those who studied the heavens. We would probably call them astrologers today. They were more astronomers, I think, than astrologers. Astrologers. Um, And you know the difference between that, right? Astronomers study the physical bodies of the heavens, and astrologists uh, put your fortune down in the paper under your birth sign. (laughs) That's a totally different perspective. Uh, God prohibits the one, and and, uh, there's nothing wrong with the other, of looking uh, to the heavens to study them. But these were those who studied and contemplated the heavens, and they had heard this prophecy of Balaam. A star will come out of Judah. And they took it literally. Isn't that fascinating? They actually took it literally. And as a consequence of that, um, they were anticipating for centuries that one day a star would appear. And that would indicate the birth of this great king. And so, when that happened, this night in Bethlehem, they saw that star. And they began to make preparations for a journey that would take them to visit the greatest king that was ever born. I want to spend the rest of the time that I have this morning talking about the birth of Jesus himself. Can you imagine this baby being <coughs> the eternal God clothed in humanity? 
Let me bring it home just a little more closely. Can you imagine holding God in your arms? Can you imagine being his mother, his father, seeing that little tiny infant form? You know, if you haven't held a newborn in a while, you forget how little they are. I could hold both of mine in the crook of my arm between my palm and my elbow, like a football. <laughs> you know, little guys. Uh, they grow up. But here's Jesus, whom the scripture says is God in human flesh. Who is this baby? What is he really like? What do the scriptures say about his nature and his character? You know, I want to share with you that if you don't get this right, all the rest of your Christianity is going to be wrong. And the reason for that is, is that most people look at Jesus and we all ex tend to excuse our behavior. You know, when, when uh, people might say, well, that's not very Christ-like. And our knee-jerk response, even if we don't say it out loud, is, well, I'm not Christ. He's God. What do you expect? I'm just a human. And when you have those kinds of thoughts, it betrays bad theology. You missed it somehow. You, you, you didn't get it. What was really happening in what we call the Incarnation. I want you to read with me in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, it's in the sidebar of your study guide if you uh, want to just look there for a moment. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, uh, the Apostle Paul writes this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which also existed in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God. Now, to make sure we understand these words, when Paul says he existed in the form of God, it doesn't mean he was like a statue, God's a real thing, and here's, here's an image. It means they were the same thing, that he existed as God. John put it this way, as I quoted to you earlier, in beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, that implies equality, face to face. And the Word was God. There's no question in Scripture about the deity of Jesus Christ. He existed in the form of God. However, Paul says, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be tenaciously grasped. You know, some people, they finally make it to power. They're not about to let go. You know, they're hanging on. But the scripture says, Although Jesus was equal with the Father, he didn't hang on to that position. 
he was willing to let that place go for a season and humbled himself and took the form of a man and being made in the likeness of human beings. And Paul goes on to explain that he went all the way to the cross for us. The scripture says in this passage, he emptied himself. Now, theologians have been fussing for centuries about what that emptying means. What does it mean that he emptied himself? Did he cease to be God? The answer to that is, no. Come on, say it with me. Did he cease to be God? No. Okay, that's real important. You really have to get that down. He did not stop being God. But he emptied himself of something. And what that something was, were the attributes. Now, it's important to note that if he did not cease to be God, he never really gave them away. But he, in my analogy, the one I like to use is he put them in the safe deposit box of heaven. They were his, but he chose not to use them here. He set them aside. How do we know that? Well, God is omniscient. God knows everything. Jesus on this earth did not know everything. In fact, he only knew what he learned. That comes as a surprise to some people, but the scripture says he learned obedience through things he suffered. The scripture says that he continued to grow in favor with God and men and, and, and to learn and assimilate information. When he was uh, growing up in his home uh, in the carpenter shop, you know, there, there were t- times when he had to say, Dad, what's that tool for? What do you do with this one? How do you sharpen that one? Uh, those were things he had to learn. Had he utilized his omniscience, he would not have had to learn those things. He said, Dad, let me show you how to do this. You know, I designed the metal that tool's made out of. Let me explain it to you. But that wasn't the way that worked. He had to learn those things. He had to learn the scriptures. He had to grow up. He had to learn how to walk. Babies are not born with muscles capable of walking. They have nerve fibers that have to complete. They have muscles that have to complete. And they have to develop balance. And all those things are in process. And he had to do the same thing. You know, he didn't just pop up one day and say, okay, today it's time to walk. I'm going to be walking from this point forward. In fact, sometimes we think about what did he look like in the manger, in the stable. And some people, I think, have in their minds that as soon as he popped out, he said, hi, mom, hi, dad, I'm God, worship me. He didn't talk. I don't mean to be crass, but I'm trying to get my point across. Jesus did not have omniscience on this earth. If you doubt that, when he talked about his own second coming, he said, no man knows the hour, not even the Son of Man. But my Father in heaven knows this hour. He was not all-powerful on earth. You say, wait a minute, I got you there. He did all these miracles. Yes, but name me a miracle 
that Jesus did that his disciples did not also do in similar fashion. Even to raising the dead. Healing the sick. Healing the lame. Casting out demons. Name me something his disciples did not do that he did. In fact, he said to them, the works that you've seen me do, you will do also and greater works because I'm going to my Father and I'm going to give you the very same Holy Spirit I have had. And he will do in you and show you all the things that I've taught you and he will do these things through you. He was not omnipresent. When the eternal God, the Son, left the heavenly throne and came into the body that was prepared for him, which, by the way, began when the Holy Spirit planted it in the womb of Mary. That was the only place he was located. He could not be two places at once. His omnipresence was limited during his time on earth to that body. And so, as we go through the attributes of God, we realize that while Jesus never gave any of them up, while he never ceased to be God, he set them aside as in not to use. And he came to this planet in the form of a, of a human being, the second Adam, the second man, the last Adam. And in that nature, with the filling of the Holy Spirit, he lived out his life in dependence upon God. It's important that we understand this. Because if we don't, we will excuse our behavior, our bad behavior. Well, you can't expect me to act like Jesus. He was God. When Jesus said, I don't do anything on my own initiative. I only do what I hear the Father saying. I only do what he shows me to do. And I do it in the power of his Spirit. The same Spirit I'm going to give you, so... When you're born again, and he's living in you, you can do these things. When we understand this rightly, we understand that he was truly our example. He blazed the trail of a new generation, a new race of people that would be born again in his likeness. So going back to this manger, you know, once I started studying the scriptures, I kind of realized how silly some of our songs can be. Away in a manger is one of them. No crying he makes. Really? Do you think the little Lord Jesus never cried? How did he let his mother know he was hungry? How did he let her know he was wet? In fact, 
we have an interesting way of thinking about things. We have gotten sin confused with normal and natural, and, and we have somehow confused bodily functions and appetite and thirst and rest and need for sleep and sexuality and all of those kinds of things as, as being somehow our frail limitations or our weaknesses. In fact, God made us with all of those things. And he said, this is really good. We are, apart from sin, still people who get hungry and thirsty and we're either male or female, and we have bodily needs and functions and all of those kinds of things. And Jesus had them in holy purity, but not weirdness. He cried. He had to learn to walk. He had to be changed. He had to grow. Can you imagine the humility? I'm not talking about the humility like sometimes we use the word like hide your head in shame. I'm talking about God Almighty stepping out of the eternal heavenlies and coming here and saying, I'm going to robe myself in flesh so that you can see me, you can walk with me, you can observe me. John, many years later, he was in his 90s probably, toward the end of the first century when he wrote his letters and his gospel. In that first letter of John, he looks back on his days with Jesus. And he says, what, what we saw. And that image of him is still fresh in my mind. What I heard and the sound of those words and his voice still rings in my ears. What I touched and handled concerning the word of life. And the impression he made is still with me. The Word became flesh and lived with us. And we saw him. And as I look back, we were astounded by his glory. Like the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Somehow, in all of his humanity, the glory of God came through. And the amazing thing is, he has made it possible for his followers to reflect the glory of God in the fullness of his Spirit. The writer of Hebrews Quoting Psalm 40, verse 6, says, Thou hast prepared a body for me, 
sacrifice and burnt offerings. That's not what you're interested in. Oh Lord, you made a body for me. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning to share the, the, the bread and to share the cup, we are reminded that this body that was formed in Mary's womb and born in that stable went all the way to the cross to be broken for us and his blood to be spilled. Burnt offering and sacrifice, Lord, is not what you're interested in, but a body you made for me that I might offer it as a sacrifice.